Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm Sue Heilbrunner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders I know. Now, before we jump in with this week's episode, I'm going to make this ask again. You've probably heard it before, but if you've heard it before and you haven't done it yet, please do it. Please go to iTunes and rate this podcast. It matters a whole lot, and I sure appreciate it. Today, we're joined by my guest, Dennis Adsit, and he runs a company called Odsum Insights. Odsum, for those of you keeping score at home, is A-D-S-U-M. You'll find out more at odsuminsights.com. Dennis, welcome to Real Leaders. Thank you, Sue. Yeah, sure. As you probably know, we'll start this podcast like I start all my podcasts, which is just asking our guest to share, uh, we'll give you a three-minute life story. Go. Three-minute life story. Wow. I I think it might be shorter than that, actually. (laughs) Let's see. I, I took this amazing psychology class in high school. We had to train a, a little rat to press a bar in a Skinner box. And uh, the teacher was amazing in addition to that, all the other stuff that he had us do, very experiential class. And um, I, I knew from, from high school that I wanted to be a psychology major. But when I went to college, I ended up majoring in psychology and math, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with both of those things. And it turns out industrial psychology is kind of a nice marriage of psychology and uh, qualitative and quantitative approaches to life. So I ended up getting a doctorate in industrial psychology. From there, I started my career in human resources. That's when I started working. I was working in human resources. I really enjoyed the work, but I was working in the wrong industry at the wrong time. And we were doing a lot of layoffs. It was a very difficult time. After about six years of it, I I realized I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I walked away. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next and ended up in management consulting. And right about the time I joined this management consultancy, the Six Sigma work that Jack Welch kind of was advocating took off and consulting firm was doing a lot of Six Sigma work. And I ended up being the Six Sigma practice leader for that firm. And one of my clients came out and uh, became CEO of Intuit. And I came out to the Bay Area from Boston and helped him get uh, Six Sigma off the ground and took on some operational roles. So I've worked for a consultancy. I've worked for big international companies, worked for Fortune 500s. Then I got the startup bug and worked for a couple of startups. To say they were less than successful would be uh, an understatement. I also realized that the startup work had moved me away from what really moved me the most, and that was working with individuals and working with organizations on helping organizations change. And so about three or four years ago, went back and got certified as an executive coach and opened my own business and have been coaching and consulting since. Somewhere in there, I uh, ended up with a black belt in Aikido and have done a lot of sort of personal work trying to blend East and West as well. So I think that's a part of my story as well. So Dennis, I have a couple questions about your three-minute life story. Along the way, if I understand correctly, you got a PhD. Can you just share a little more about that? You know, what would be interesting about that? Most people find uh, PhDs not very, not very interesting. So what, what would be interesting about that to your listeners? Okay, so what's your, or to me, I'll, I'll, be the first, I'll be the first line of defense, the first gate here. What was your PhD in? Well, it was in industrial psychology, and I did my dissertation on an element of, uh, uh, in the area of cognitive psychology, so I, I was I was kind of one of those behavioral economists before the term became popular. So my dissertation was on how people try to solve problems and, you know, the role of being able to generate diverse ideas and how that influences a person's ability to reason towards 
correct solutions. That's what I studied. So the fact that you have a PhD, there are a lot of people out there that are pursuing a PhD and they're wondering, is this worth it? Is this the right path? If you don't want to be a professor, well, actually a better way of asking this question is, in your current line of work, working with companies and individuals on a bunch of things we'll talk about in a minute, does your PhD in educational background serve you? That's a, let's see, it's a difficult question to answer, actually. I don't think I've ever won or lost work because of the PhD. So that's the first thing I would say. I think it gives me a level of confidence going in there because I've studied organizations and performance of individuals and teams and organizations to a very deep level. So it gives me a degree of confidence. And I think that comes through. So yeah, if somebody's wondering about getting a PhD, I would say for business reasons, don't do it. The reason I did it was I had a research question that I had to answer. I knew I, it was like an itch that had to be scratched. And that's the only thing that sustained me through it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what you actually do. There are a lot of coaches. I'm talking to you because I think your practice is sort of unique, and I want to zone in on one specific thing you do that I think is most interesting. But just tell me a little bit about what the range of things you do is as an executive coach and consultant. So I, I do like to work at both the individual and the organizational level, and I think that makes me a, a bit unique. I, I find there's consultants out there that they're not very good coaches in general, and there's coaches out there that uh, really are not interested in group or organization work. And, and I, I really like both. In fact, I, I feel like I need both to be fully engaged. I like working with individuals, but I also like moving the needle on big organizational issues as well. So my individual work is largely executive coaching. I do some career transition stuff. And I, I think the service that we're going to be talking about today is helping people be more effective in their first 100 days on the job. So that's some of the career transition work that I do. But I also do this more general executive coaching, how people are showing up at work, helping people get to the next level. They've gotten promoted from director to vice president, and they're trying to show up differently and carry themselves differently. And I work with them on those fronts. My consulting work would be considered organizational development work and work around the culture of the organization, team building with an executive and his or her team, trying to make sure that they're aligned, got the right resources, the right focus to execute effectively. That would be more on the, on the consulting side. And in an organization, let's say that has an HR function, a person or people in that function, how is it that you're incrementally beneficial to a company? Well, there's a lot of things that executives will talk to an outside person about that they're not going to talk to someone inside the organization about. They just don't have that level of trust. There's uh, a level at which they want to open the kimono that they're not comfortable doing that internally. And so that's one thing. I, I think there's another way in which people inside the company say something and then you get somebody from the outside that provides that perspective and somehow it's able to produce more change or it's believed more when it comes from somebody from the outside. So there is that element. I mean, I w I've been on the inside providing advice and counsel to people and um, they didn't take it. But when somebody from the outside came along and said something very similar, they thought that was a good idea then. So I understand that dynamic and you know it's real. Yeah, I'm sure that sensitivity is really helpful. Saturday Night Live this past weekend, one of the topics they were talking about is the fact that there have been so many outside celebrities and past Saturday Night Live cast members coming on Saturday Night Live this past year or two 
that the existing cast members aren't getting enough airtime, which is interesting and a bit of a random connection between what you were saying, but actually it feels exactly this, a similar issue. Uh, yeah. And the benefits of having these outside folks who are similarly unique for a show like Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Okay. So, Dennis, let's talk about this idea of the first 100 days. First of all, where did you get the idea to create a specific program for people starting or just considering moving towards starting a new role? Where'd that come from for you? Uh, a great question. I was um, I was doing some work for Lee Heck Harrison. I was mostly doing who's, executive who's coaching. Lee Heck Harrison? It's an HR consulting firm, mostly focused on career transition, but also other you know human resources related issues like executive coaching, for example, and some organizational development work. But they're their bread and butter is really around career transition for people like, you know, Bay Area company will lay a bunch of people off. They'll contract with Lee Heck Terrison and Lee Heck Terrison will provide outplacement support for those people, helping them trying to find a new job. Okay. So I was working on, you know, both sides of the house a little bit. And what I saw was that we'd help someone get a new job. And then six months later, a year later, somebody would call on them to try to see if they were interested, you know, in executive coaching and consulting services. And it just felt like there was this window where, you know, why aren't we trying to help them be successful in this job and get traction in this job? And it's a population of people, those that have been out of work, is a population of people that really wants to do a good job. They really want this next position to be really successful for them. So I started wondering, you know, why aren't we providing, you know, bridge support there? And this idea just came to me and I just went off and built a program probably in a few weeks time that I've been evolving since I initially created it. And just to be clear, you're working not only with people who have been out of work, who are getting back into a new job, but also people who have who are making a transition from one great job to a new great job, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, a lot of my clients, my executive coaching clients, you know, they go on and get promoted to, you know, either within their company or they take a position someplace else. And that's a time when we shift gears and we stop working on on sort of maybe an aspect of their leadership approach. And we get very tactical about let's make sure that you integrate quickly and build really positive momentum in this first 100 days. Let's not leave this to chance. So it's a very, uh, I want to say uh, tactical, that's not completely the right word, but we just shift focus from how someone is showing up as a leader generally to some very specific steps to make that first 100 days successful. Okay, that sounds good. And we'll talk more detail about that. First, I just want to get at the problem here. In your mind, based on your experience you've had bringing this 100 Days program to life and bringing it to all sorts of people, what's the problem companies are trying to solve around this issue? Why does this matter? And then what is the most common thing you want to award against um, from an individual perspective, the new team member perspective? Well, the first part of your question is actually the problem. The first part of your question is what, what, you know, what are organizations trying to solve here? And they're not. And that's actually the problem. As I sort of waded into it, waded into the research, waded into the best practices here to put this program together, I realized that this is one of those hidden iceberg problems in organizations. You know, the most important forces or factors in an organization's success often cannot be measured. And, you know, this is one of those unmeasured areas where companies go off and hire these people for very big jobs. And 
they don't do anything to try to make them successful or to try to, you know, they find the person and then, and then they sort of walk away. They put them in their desk and they kind of walk away. And I, I think they do that at their peril. There's a lot of costs that are incurred as a result of missteps that the individual takes, getting off to a bad start, you know, making some mistakes with the team, the wrong focus. And sometimes that leads to the executive just getting bogged down. That has some costs associated with it. You know, just imagine that a leader's running an organization with 150 people or 1,000 people or more in it. And if they start to get bogged down and slow down in what they're trying to do, I mean, that there's huge cost implications from that. There's also the fact that sometimes these leaders flame out. And there was a 2003 study that estimated that the cost to replace a, an executive in an organization is somewhere between 750000 and and 1.5 million. And that was 2003, which is you know well over a decade ago. So if I can, I, I want to go back and answer the second part of your uh, question. Right, from the individual's perspective. Yep, yeah, that's great. Yeah, from the individual. So you ask the organizational perspective, and I think that's a huge opportunity here. Organization, and let me tell you a little story that you might find interesting. So I was talking to this serial entrepreneur. I was talking to him about this program and about you know his new hires and tried to find out what his approach was. And you know, I was going through the details of my program and he said, this all sounds really good and I really should be doing it, but that's not what I do. He said, you know, what I do is I hire somebody, put them in the job, and then I go back 90 days later and they're either getting traction or they're not. And if they're not, I, f I fire them and I, and I go find somebody else. And he recognized that, that that's just a terrible pattern and it was costing him. He probably shouldn't be doing it, but he was sort of stuck in that paradigm. Now, from an individual perspective, you know, individuals take on these big jobs. You know, sometimes they're stepping up to a new level. Sometimes they're finally moving from the, you know, maybe a company that wasn't as prestigious to a prestigious company. They really want this to go well. And they often walk into those situations without a game plan. It's kind of amazing. So they, they just they walk into this new opportunity and they haven't thought about what is their approach to the first hundred days to try to do this well? And so they're doing it unconsciously. And, you know, that's never going to end well when someone is approaching an activity with no conscious intent behind it. Dennis, one of the things that comes up for me as you talk about this is a lot of the people you probably work with, the people who really want to invest in something like this, at least from the individual perspective, are, are pretty high capability leaders. So one challenge I would imagine is they've already been really successful. They've been promoted either inside a company or to a different company to something that's even more high powered. Aren't they reluctant to think that they could benefit from this kind of outside help given how successful they've already been? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. And they think I've done this before. You know, I've been the director of engineering. This is the third time I'm, you know, director of engineering or now vice president of engineering. I don't need any help. But I've never had anybody go through this program that hasn't said, oh, my God, this is amazing. I've never thought about some of the things that you're asking me to do and, and, and asking me to prepare uh, as I go through my first 100 days. I've always just kind of winged it, and it's worked out well. I mean, there's some people out there that are – I mean, there's plenty of good leaders out there, and it's worked out well for them. But I, I have not encountered anyone that hasn't gotten something out of this program that they've never done before that's been – hugely beneficial to them. All right. When's the right day to start? If you're starting your job on January 1st of a new year, when should you start this 100 days approach? Well, 
oftentimes what I'm doing with my clients is I'm working with them even before they've accepted the job. If they're really good, as you've been postulating, they might have multiple options and they might have multiple positions that they are pursuing. And in that case, the first step is really trying to assess the fit. What is it that they're really good at and really comfortable with and what's going to be required from them in the new job? That's really important because nothing will set you up for an unsuccessful first hundred days and an unsuccessful job uh, more than taking the wrong job. So work with them on trying to say what's going to be a better fit for you. What's this job going to require you to stretch into and are you prepared to stretch into those areas? Mm -hmm. So, for example, let's say a leader just loves marketing really good at marketing, natural intuition around uh, marketing and sales and related areas. But she takes a job and the problems are in the product development, let's say, and the offering. Is she prepared to go and dig into this technology and dig into that offering and get smart about what's going on and what those issues are? Because that's what's going to be needed, not more marketing help. And if she's not ready to do that, she ought to think twice about going into that job. So we're often starting before someone actually takes the job. And then once they take the job, there's usually most people are smart enough to give themselves a couple weeks or a month before they start that new job. I'm working with them in that period of time because one of my aphorisms is you need to start before you start. And that doesn't mean you start working, but that means you you start the job. And there's some steps you can take and some things you can do and prepare before day one, so that day one is not day one. Okay, so you said one of your aphorisms. I mean, are there any others that come to mind? Are you a man of many aphorisms or a couple? I like aphorisms, I'm not going to lie. What's another one? I didn't come down with yesterday's rain. Oh, that's a good one. I like that one. Okay, yeah, good. What are some of the most common things that you see go wrong, some of the most common potholes for people starting a new role? There's some very common missteps that people make. And these missteps can you know, just be from, again, just things that slow them down or bog them down to the kinds of things that can actually completely derail them. So for example, most people that are taking a new job, they want to have an impact. They want to be seen as value added. And they oftentimes take on too much. They say yes to too much. And they dilute their focus, they don't work on the right things, and they just don't make significant progress because they say yes to too much. I've, I've got two clients that I'm working with right now where this is their very issue. They are negotiating with their boss to try and make sure the expectations for what they're going to deliver is crystal clear. Bosses are trying to push more down on them. They're trying to sort of like say, hey, how do we layer this in against the other priorities that you've already uh, signed me up for? So trying to take on too much is a very common problem. Another one is I think a lot of leaders, especially when they're walking into a situation where significant change is going to be required, they underestimate how much communication is going to be necessary. Communication with stakeholders, but especially communication with their team. And by underestimating how much communication is going to be needed, how much reinforcement of the key messages is going to be needed, the the program, the change effort doesn't get the traction that they're looking for. Those are smaller 
problems, bigger problems that can actually completely derail you is there's sometimes people come in and they act like they're a savior, right? They, they act like they know more than everybody else. And, you know, they came from this and that big company, or they got a reputation of some kind and they come in and they act like a savior and that, you know, nothing builds up resistance more. Uh, you, you, you know, you know what happens to most saviors, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. Another one is people stick with what got me here. I used the example before about uh, the woman that was very good at marketing and sales and the problems were in engineering and they stick with what got them there. Or, you know, somebody's making a transition from frontline supervisor where they had to pay a lot of attention to details and now they've moved up and now they're managing other managers. And that sort of micromanagement focus is just not going to work for them. And again, resistance builds, you know, the, the team starts to circle the wagons against the leader. And that can ultimately lead to the leader having to get swapped out. If those are some of the key issues you're trying to address, what are some of the elements of your program that you find to be most successful in attacking or preventing some of the issues you just talked about? Yeah, you know, let me give you an overview. So, you know, four phases. I already talked about one a little bit. The first step is let's just assess the fit, whether I'm starting with a client before they accept the job or right after they accept the job. We're really looking at this job and what's going to be required in this job versus what the person is good at and comfortable with. You know, they got a wicked forehand, but they're going to need to learn a backhand in order to be successful in this job. So we start to put that into that 100-day plan, put that into the learning plan about how we get smart about that aspect of the job where they're going to be required to um, show more expertise perhaps than they have in the past. So that's kind of phase one, assess the fit. Phase two is start before you start. So this is prior to day one and a lot of activity in that space. I you know, meet with my clients for anywhere from four to six hours before they start. I give them homework assignments for things I want them to prepare. One of the things, this is like a, such a simple thing that's often overlooked is how the person's gonna introduce themselves in their new job during their first, especially first couple of weeks, but you know, even beyond that. And for, for most people, it sounds like they're reading their name, rank, and serial number off their dog tag. You know, it's like, oh, super excited to be here. I was at XYZ company before this in this position, and I also worked there and an economist by training, and I've got an MBA from Wharton. And it's just, it doesn't say anything about who the person is and what it's going to be like to work with them. You know, sometimes you're just meeting somebody in the hallway, but sometimes you're asked to stand up and introduce yourself and you're expected to, like you did at the beginning of the broadcast here, spend a couple minutes and tell us about yourself. And so I ask my clients to really not wing that, really think through that and think through a story that helps people get the sense of what it's like to work with you. So that's a, something that I, I don't find anybody thinking about that. Another thing uh, in that sort of second phase, the start before you start, is I ask people to start thinking about a personal board of directors. Like, who's going to provide some advice for you in this new position, especially for these areas where you're not as good? Maybe you don't know this technology area as well. So who can you put on your personal board of directors that can help you get smarter about this technology area? And is that or inside the company? 
It could be inside or outside. I ask people to put together a personal board of directors that has both some internal people inside the company on it and some outside perspective. And again, in that start before you start phase, I have them line up the people and line up the lunches during that first 100 days just so somebody can step back and check their thinking, check their thought process and get someone else to look over their shoulder a little bit. That's the main part of phase two. Phase three, you know, sort of once day one occurs, right now we're trying to build support for the mission, build support for the team, buy some of this personal credibility. And I find what a lot of people are doing is they're, they're task focused only as opposed to being task and influence focused, right? What they're doing during those first hundred days is they're making these relationship deposits with people and they're leaving these impressions with people. And we're trying to orchestrate that a little bit more. You still got to deliver the mail. You still got to do the job and get the tasks right. But there's ways in which people get too focused on the right answer, like it's a math problem and not like it's an influence problem where you need to start building those relationships. And then finally, I check in with my clients and adapt plans as we go forward. So I find myself meeting with them either every week for maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes or every other week for maybe a little bit longer. And, I, you know, I ask them questions about how that's going. We, we go back to our original 100 day plans that we put together, the learning plans we put together. And I see how, how's it going against what we thought. Right. It's like. You make a plan for the battle and then the battle starts and it never goes like that. So we figure out where we need to adapt and make some adjustments. I, I like to ask my clients a, a couple questions. You know, one is, have you learned anything in the last week or two that has disconfirmed any of your hypotheses? You thought it was one way or it was going to be one thing or it was going to be one focus or the culture was going to be a, needed to be adjusted in one way. Have you learned anything which sort of causes you to question whether that's the right direction or not. So that's a favorite step back question for my clients. Another one I like to ask them is, is there anything you're avoiding? Is there anything you're looking the other way on, hoping it goes away? Because it never does, and that thing that you hope goes away is, is likely gonna be the thing that's gonna trip you up. Mm, that's a really good point. It seems to me that things are different when you come in and you're hired to start a new team or a new function, which I work with a lot of startups, so that's not an unusual scenario, versus being brought in because the leader of a team that's already sort of set or has, has a real population either failed and was let go or elected to leave. How do you think about the difference in walking into either of those two scenarios? Well... In, in the former scenario, the nice part about that is you get to pick your team. And so you get to pick the people that have the characteristics that you're looking for, that are wired the way you want them to be wired, that are people that you like and, and like being around and want to work with. That's an ideal situation. I mean, it's not easy to recruit. It's not easy to bring people in. But you can imagine, you know, putting five, six, seven key lieutenants around you that are just exactly what you're looking for. You can cover a lot of ground with a team like that. Right. 
When you come in from the outside, you know, let's say the leader's been let go or the leader went on to another position, you know, you're inheriting someone else's decisions and someone else's problems. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of expertise there. There's a lot of knowledge there. There's really good people there. But there's also some people that they were looking the other way on, too, and some problems that they were looking the other way on. And so those people issues and problems need to be uncovered and you need to figure out, you know, sort of what's the game plan here for these problems and individuals and what's the timing of that. I mean, obviously you can't come in and blow up your team on the first day. That's not going to work. You know, one of the things you ask for aphorisms, you know, another aphorism in this work is for the first 90 days, it's the previous person's team. After 90 or 100 days, it's your team. Well, it better be, right? Yeah. If it's not, you're in trouble. Yeah. And the number one regret, you know, if we could sort of like say, okay, boil it all down to like all, you know, all the scars from, you know, from, you know, past leaders that have done first hundred day programs or, you know, completed first hundred days multiple times in their career. If you ask them, what's your biggest regret? They'll, they'll say, I didn't move fast enough on the team. Mm. And, and what that means is some people need to go. Some people just are not in the right job. Some people need feedback that they've never gotten before. And leaders are trying to make an impression. They're trying to fit in. And they find that they waited too long on some of those key decisions. And, they, and, the, the, and the failure to move more quickly ended up slowing down their change efforts down the road. This brings up another issue for me, just that last thing you said, which is there are a lot of people that are sort of built for change versus the kind of dominant type being one of patience. And you talk about timing as if it's so obvious that everybody knows timing is everything. But it, in, in the way I operate in the world, sometimes I'm not even aware of the concept of timing. That's how not organic that concept is for me. So we talked a little bit about team, but just as a general matter, what do you think the optimal balance is between the desire to create change and the attention to timing? Well, that, that's, that's hard to answer in the abstract, I would say. So yeah, l- let me give you an example in the, in the extreme. You know, in an American company, it depends on the situation too, right? If you, if you walk into a company and, and, the, and the place is on fire, you know, they're expecting you to drive a lot of change fast. If you walk into a company, it's not on fire. You know, if it's an American company, there's still the expectation that, you know, there's going to, okay, you know, what's working, what's not working, and what are you chipping away at? I mean, that's a pretty common expectation. Just again, to to take it to an extreme, if you walk into a Japanese company and you're working in a Japanese company, you know, they'll say they don't want you to get anything done in the first hundred days. They just want you to meet people and get to know people and get to know the culture and the organization, the way things are done. That's, you know, typically very important in a Japanese company. You have to know what you're walking into and uh, you know, try to respond appropriately. And when I say respond appropriately, I think the biggest issue there is you wanna make sure you're aligned with your boss. You wanna make sure you and your boss see the same game and you have the same expectations about what you're gonna drive. You know, Again, another aphorism, you, you ask for it. Your boss may give you a lot of rope, don't take it. Huh, great point. So. I realize this is broad and I realize it's conceptual and I realize that based on personality type, some people don't like hypothetical questions. But the question is, 
How should most people, based on what you've seen over your years of doing this work, how should they balance the development and importance of building relationships against the first hundred days urgency of generating results? So I don't think it's answerable in the in the hypothetical. Again, you're walking into a situation. The question is, you know, what's the level of urgency around getting some things accomplished? You know, if the job's been open for three months or six months, you know, they're probably desperate for some things to happen very quickly. And you're going to have to put some points on the board. Uh, on the other hand, people don't want to think you're just coming in from the outside and applying a cookie cutter. They want to know that you're there to learn, there to really understand the customers and the technology and what the precedents have been before that. So it's really just a question of balance. And I, I think if you have both in mind, like, okay, am I aligned with my boss on the change agenda? Am I making progress on that change agenda? And who are the key stakeholders in what I'm trying to do? And do I feel like I've made some progress in terms of building relationships with those key stakeholders? If you've got both of those things in focus, you're probably doing a pretty good job. I worry about the people that are just in there thinking it's a math problem and are trying to get the right answer and get tasks accomplished and forget they've got to make these relationship deposits and build these networks because it's not just what they're going to get done in the first hundred days. It's one of their, what they're going to get done beyond that. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, even just listening to you talk about this, I think just awareness that that is attention is probably a lot of the game. And if you know that your tendency is to be heavily relationship focused, then you might balance that by really being sure on deliverability. Uh, and the opposite, I think, is also true. I'm sensitive to that because I think I'm more the opposite. I just think, you know, the idea of setting up lunches and doing that kind of thing. And in new roles, I know that there have been other people in the organization to whom that was incredibly important with respect to my start. And mm -hmm. I've had a bit of a tin year about that in my career. So I really appreciate just even the idea of it, I think, is wise to, to think about. And this is a meaningful segue. I mean, you've been talking a lot about your engagement with your clients in the first 100 days. Tell me about the balance or the, you know, is part of your program systematic, programmatic? Do you have assignments versus kind of the coaching work that you also do? Yeah, no, that's that's why I was uh, trying to say earlier that this aspect of the coaching, and it is coaching, is is very tactical. There's very specific steps to start before you start. There's very specific things that I ask my clients to do. I get They get homework assignments. They got spreadsheets to go and start to fill out. Uh, so very specific things to do to get ready. It's not just, you know, make sure you've gone to Costco and bought all the things you need to do because you're probably not going to get to go shopping in the first three months. So it's, <laughs> it's not like that. Very specific assignments. And then once they've sort of got the game plan, you know, on a piece of paper for what they're going to do, again, you know, then there's day one and all bets are off. And so we're working to adjust those plans. Like, you know, for example, I just had a client start. She took on a strategy role and she's trying to help this organization not only change its approach to building strategy and developing strategy, but she's also being asked to contribute specific things around the strategic function. So she gets in there, she starts down this path and then Leadership asks her to take over this management offsite that's coming up, which looked like it was an extra assignment, but actually she could sort of dovetail the two things together and make uh, part of that offsite be about 
the strategy process, for example. So those things actually played together. Then there was an acquisition that the organization did, and they asked her to be part of the acquisition team. So we had a 100-day plan. We had some sense about what we were going to try and do going in there. And then by the end of the first, I don't know, two and a half weeks on the job, she had a couple very different assignments on her plate than she thought she was going to have going in there. So we have to adjust the 100-day plans, and we have to uh, make sure that we're going – she's circling back and adjusting – her boss's expectations about, okay, this is what we're going to do in phase one. First 100 days is going to include this merger integration team plus the offsite, plus this is the progress I think I can make on the stra- uh, strategy development process. And then in phase two, I'll, I'll focus more on strategy development and get this competitive information flowing into the company, et cetera. But that, that was an example of an adjustment that had to be made after the first 100 days. That's really helpful. Thanks for walking us through this. Why are you the perfect person to help people with this issue in specific, as opposed to a lot of the other issues you could put attention on in the context of business? Well, I, I think I'm really good in this role because well, I'm, a, I'm a good coach. That's one reason. But two, I've spent a lot of time studying this, study what works, studying what's necessary, what people are doing, what they're not doing, the mistakes that they're making. And in putting this program together, another thing I bring to it is just my sort of consulting and business experience at both the startup level and the large organization level. I've got a lot of perspective. So it's not just about, okay, now you need to put a 100-day plan in place, but I can look at what's in that 100-day plan and I can provide counsel around that about, you know, this is going to be more effective than that based on my, you know, consulting experience and my, and my uh, organizational experience. Okay, that's great. That makes perfect sense. And I'm glad I came, came back to education. What do you like about it most? Well, let's see. I, I think what I like about it most is the discovery process. I, I, I sort of, it's just this wonderful experience of someone going into a new job. I, I sort of feel like, uh, this is, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but I sort of feel like I'm operating a drone a little bit. And, and I know that doesn't quite sound right, but I feel like they're on the ground inside the company you know, looking around, gathering information, you know, trying to make this go. And I'm sort of part of the team that's helping to guide them and steer them towards making more effective decisions and just making sure they don't, you know, step on any landmines by neglecting certain things during the first hundred days or neglecting relationships or, you know, building their stakeholder network or relying on some outside counsel where they might be just all heads down, So I I enjoy that. I enjoy guiding them towards success. And I really like the feeling when after their first 100 days, I I really like the feeling it happens not just at the end of 100 days, but along the way. I had this one client, he went into a situation uh, as a, you know, senior program manager, and he followed, he followed the program to a T. And he had multiple people, boss, people on his team, peers come up to him and say, I've never seen anyone do that in the first 100 days, and that was amazingly effective. And I I love that. I love it when they're, you know, getting traction and their people are, uh, the people around them are really appreciating what they're bringing to the role. Hmm. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So I know that you live in the Bay Area, and I'm curious, and this will just a quick answer, your first thing that comes into your mind, what do you think is the most significant thing that Bay Area companies get wrong about this issue of that that good start for a new team member? Yeah, it's back to what we said up front is there are few people that are doing anything with this. I know one HR leader that recognizes this opportunity. 
And she told me the, the opportunity being, how do we help people in the most critical positions? What do we do as an organization to help them be more effective? She recognizes this, the importance of this. And when she talks to her peers, that's other HR vice presidents, they look at her like she's got six heads. No one's doing this. There's a lot of things that are sub-optimized in large and small companies, but this is one of those areas where people just have an amazing blind spot to the amount of friction they are allowing to continue by not addressing this, the amount of money that they're leaving on the table by not you know, buying some insurance for this key position that they've just filled. Okay, that's really helpful. So Dennis, the last thing, the way we finish this podcast is a lightning round. You ready? These are quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Okay. Okay. Best job you've ever had? I think it was when I was working at the consulting firm uh, and we were doing Six Sigma work. I think that was the best job I ever had because we were working with the most senior leadership teams at some of the biggest companies in the, in the country. And uh, it was just very helpful to you know, introduce this to them and help them see what could be helpful about that approach and uh, get them to start you know, aligning around it. Okay. Great. Best boss you've ever had. Quick. The best boss I ever had was my, it was actually my first job. That was the best boss I ever had. Um, what made that person such a great boss? He saw what I was good at and how he helped me bring out what I was good at. And he saw things that I was good at that I didn't know I was good at yet. And he encouraged me to pursue them until I was good at them. Oh, that's nice. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in the first hundred days yourself? Uh, I, I would say, you know, just telling an inappropriate joke and, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, you know, I like to use humor in, in my approach to kind of, you know, alleviate tension and, you know, just, I don't know, just like work gets very serious and I like to, you know, use humor. And I think this humor that I used uh, in this particular situation was a little, uh, inappropriate and I had to go back and clean it up. <laughs> that makes sense. Dennis. Leaving aside work or including work doesn't really matter, but it has to be something you can talk about without offending people on this podcast. What if you could do any one thing for an hour that wasn't in the privacy of your bedroom and it would just be your absolute favorite thing to do? What is it? Oh, that's easy. I'd play hockey. Are you any good at hockey? The best thing you could say about my hockey skills is I'm enthusiastically mediocre. Awesome. Great. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for being on Real Leaders. This is Dennis Adsit of Odsum Insights. That's A-D as in Dennis, S-U-M as in Mary, insights.com. Thank you so much for being with us and giving us some insight on this thing that I think almost no one is thinking about. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Real Leaders is brought to you by Leadership Camp, created by Mergeling. Leadership Camp is a two and a half day deep dive into conscious leadership, building more self-aware leaders and helping to make great leaders extraordinary. Find out about the next scheduled women's camp, co-ed camps, relationship camps, and mini camps and reserve your seat today at leadership.camp. Thanks for being with us again this time. We'll see you next time on Real Leaders. If you have comments, feedback, questions, or just want to chat, Find me on Twitter at TellSue.